All right. I didn't mean for him to do that yet. It kind of gives it away. But uh, that's all right. Well, hang out there. There you go. <laughs> all right. Uh, I want to join in with uh, Caden and welcome everyone out tonight. I hope what we talk about will be beneficial to you in some way. Uh, last, in, in September when I talked, when, when I uh, first started off, I, I drew a comparison or I guess more of a contrast between the burial of Moses and the burial of Jesus. Um, and tonight I'm going to do something a little similar, but I'm going to compare their births, some of the events that surrounded their birth. Real quick here at the beginning, um, just because I, I always thought it was kind of interesting, it kind of leads into the lesson some. So um, talk about the birth of Moses here and what it says in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Uh, we know we're very familiar with the birth of both of these men. Uh, the, uh, the story that goes along with it we've heard since we were children. It says, Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now after this happened, uh, we, we know what happened here. The, uh, the midwives did not follow the order of Pharaoh. And so he made a command in verse 22 saying, uh, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And so like I said, we, we all know this story. Uh, this man Pharaoh, he, he felt threatened. He felt that his nation was threatened because of this growing population of people who could one day take over. And so he sends down this command to kill every male uh, child that's born. The daughters you can save alive, but kill the male children because of this threat. Now we look at the birth of Jesus. And uh, starting in Matthew 2, 1 through 4, we see a, a different uh, monarch, different king here. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And we know what happened here. The wise men came. Uh, Herod, you know, he, is, he hears what they say. He doesn't reveal it here, but he's also troubled, just like Pharaoh was troubled. This is a threat, uh, not, not to the nation, but mainly to him. And uh, because of that, in verse 16, after we know after the wise men didn't come back to Herod like they were supposed to, and, and he had been tricked by them. Uh, when he saw uh, that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Um, so another king here that we have in, in, in a command or... or an edict that they put down that just seems unbelievable that uh, someone could do. 
And, and here we have two, two great characters uh, that we study about, and, and it happened at the time of both of their births. Um, Moses, not because it wasn't directed just at Moses, it was, you know, uh, all, these, all these children being born, he wanted to slow the population down. In this case, it was aimed directly at Jesus and his birth. Um, but uh, I always found it, found it interesting, this, this, this uh, unbelievable uh, command put down by a king in, in, in both of these instances. Uh, the one I want to focus on tonight and, and look a little more at was, is this one here with Jesus. Uh, what I want to talk about is King Herod, uh, the idea that he could do this. And we don't read a whole lot about Herod. Um, this is, uh, or it's called, he's called here uh, King the King, King of the Jews. And uh, the wise men, we know when they came, they were looking for the one who was to be born King of the Jews. This Herod that we'll talk about tonight is Herod the First. In the Bible, we read about seven Herods. Uh, this will be the, the first one that we uh, look at or that we see. Herod the Great, he lived from 74 to 4 B.C. And so, as you can tell there, he, he lived, and, and you probably remember, he lived right up till just a little after Jesus was born. Um, I apologize. Uh, Oh, I know what I... <laughs> um, let's go on, Blake. I'm sorry. Uh, first part I want to look at here, we're, we're going to break his life down a little bit, and, and we're going to go through a whole lot of things. I'm going to throw a whole lot of information at you. I don't, I don't expect you to remember it all or retain it all. I kind of just want to go through the narrative to try to look at the events through his life and some of the things that happened that give us an idea of the kind of man who could do what he what we have read that he has ordered down uh, as unbelievable as it seems there's a, a whole lot of things uh, that led up to that for sure uh, i always find it interesting when you when you look at these characters especially during this time this time in in world history is as far as the roman empire goes it's it's in a stage where um other than what we read about in the Bible, it's a, it's a part of the Roman history that you're probably the most familiar with. Uh, this is during the time of Julius Caesar, uh, the time of Augustus Caesar, the time of Mark Antony, and the time of Cleopatra. All those are names you've heard of before, and they all make an appearance in the lesson tonight. And I always find it interesting when you can connect someone that we read about in the Bible to people that we know about from secular history. And so that's always a good thing. And, and then uh, uh, Herod, as far as reading about him in the Bible, what we read, or what Jeremy read just a few minutes ago, and I read just now there in Matthew chapter 2, that's about all you read about him. Uh, his name comes up a couple more times, but it's mainly, you know, it says something like during the time of King Herod, or it talks about a place that Herod maybe built or, or something like that. And we'll look at some of that even tonight. But Herod does not take up much room in the Bible, but this one chapter he does occupy gives us one story that we, we all know uh, for our entire lives. And I hope after tonight, when you read Matthew chapter 2, and, and of course, especially as the holiday season's coming up, that story is going to come up quite a bit. And maybe you'll have a little more appreciation for uh, the 
the who Herod was and, and what what he uh, actually was in life uh, that led to these events. In 74 BC, uh, Herod was born to Antipater the Idumean, and his mother was Nabatean. There was uh, Nabatean, that was her, uh, not her name, that was her uh, nationality, actually. Both these lands were, were located in southern Israel. Uh, Idumea is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Edom. Herod, Herod and his father were both Edomites. And if you remember, uh, Edom, of course, was founded by Esau. So you think back, Jacob and Esau, basically the birth of, you know, the Israel, the Jewish people and, and, and all that. Uh, we know he, Jacob and Esau uh, had a falling out, but eventually reconciled. However, the peoples that came from them, there was always strife among them. So... Uh, that, that, of course, always led to problem. There was always tension between the ones. Uh, the, city, the city of Nabatea, or the land of Nabatea, rather, was most famous for the city of Petra. Uh, this was a city that was carved into the side of a mountain, and this is where uh, Herod's mother was from. Here's a picture uh, showing that city carved in the side of the mountain. And, and uh, uh, you, if thinking back to my lesson from last time, uh, I, I mentioned that during the destruction of Jerusalem when many people fled from the city and went to other places, Petra was one of those places that the people fled to back in that time. This place still exists, and you can actually, if you go to the, that land, you can visit it today. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, Antipater, uh, Herod's father, was an official under John Hyrcanus II. John Hyrcanus, there was a, during this time, um, of course, uh, uh, the Jewish people were under Roman rule. And the, uh, the, the sad thing is that not long before this was one of the few times and one of the first times in a long time that they were actually uh, a sovereign state. It didn't last very long. I don't even think it lasted 100 years. Uh, but John Hyrcanus II uh, he was he was in charge when when they were actually uh, uh, taken over, and when Rome came in to help, uh, Rome basically took over rule, and in order, or, and then they would fall under Roman rule. Uh, Antipater in 47 B.C. was appointed governor of Judea uh, by Rome, and then he assigned his son Herod, at 25 years old, uh, to be the governor of Galilee. Uh, Herod still here was under his, the, uh, under his father, uh, but he got his position of power here, and this is where he started moving up. Uh, around this time, er, uh, Julius Caesar uh, is making a move. Uh, Herod and his father both are kind of ruling land, and uh, not, not a whole lot of things going on with Rome uh, as far as watching over him because of what's going on here with Julius Caesar. Uh, Caesar has come back to Rome. He has his army with him and the famous scene where he crosses the Rubicon and he takes his army into Rome uh, and that, of course, is, is not allowed. It's against the law and because of that, it throws Rome into civil war. And so they were kind of able to fly under the radar because Rome was uh, under such turmoil at the time. Four years later, in 43 B.C., we see that Antipater, uh, Herod's father, was assassinated, and Herod succeeds him at 29 years old. 
this is done not really uh, by the appointment of Rome, and it isn't confirmed by Rome. Uh, it just kind of, Herod just kind of moves his own self in and, and just kind of takes over and just kind of hopes no one really notices. Well, why wasn't it confirmed by Rome? Well, the reason is because in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar had just been assassinated. And you know, you've heard that story before the Senate. Uh, he, he was getting so much power, the, the Senate uh, conspired together and decided to put an end to his life before he could become too powerful. Uh, he, of course, in that scene, uh, you remember that uh, Caesar saw his friend Brutus during the killing, and that's where the line, et tu Brute, meaning, and you also, Brutus, uh, as he saw his friend being one of the conspirators. In 42 B.C., after this happened, Octavian, who was his nephew and stepson of Caesar, uh, came to get revenge. He and Mark Antony uh, were, were fighting uh, in the Civil War against the Senate and their, their people. Uh, the Battle of Philippi happened in 42 B.C., and they defeated Brutus and Cassius. In 42, after this battle, Herod, he hadn't really declared his side before, but this, this he realized was the time that he needed to rush in and declare that he was on Octavian and Mark Antony's side the whole time and show them that he was a strong supporter of their, theirs, and that's exactly what it did. Uh, and then because of that, because he showed his support for them, Herod is confirmed as governor of Judea by Octavian, and then Octavian is later known as Augustus Caesar. And Herod would constantly be trying to win the favor of Augustus, as any good politician would. You want to be uh, in favor of whoever is the most in charge, and at this time it's definitely Octavian or Augustus. In 40 B.C., a couple years later, uh, a Hasmonean prince named Antigonus rose up. The Hasmoneans were uh, Jewish people. They were kind of the ruling class, and uh, they, they looked at Herod, um, and, and uh, or, or Herod here, they wanted to drive him out. Um, Antigonus, most of the, the Hasmoneans at this time, they were, I guess, content to be the rulers and have the positions that they had. But you had some people like Antigonus that he wasn't content with that. He didn't like the idea of the Jewish people being under Roman rule. And so he wanted to drive them out and he wanted to have their own independence. Herod here, even though he was one of them basically, uh, was a Roman appointment, and so they didn't like that either, and they wanted complete control. So Antigonus enlisted the help of the Parthian army. The people of Parthia, Parthia did not like the Roman presence in their backyard as well, and they were eager to help. They wanted to come in and, and drive Rome further away. Rome had tried to take over Parthia at this time a few times, and then finally had given up. And so he enlists their help. Because of this, Herod flees to Rome, and he asked for help in trying to regain his control as governor. The Senate agrees. They agree that Herod does need to be put back in charge. It wouldn't be good for the Hasmonean Antigonus and the Parthians to take over, so they want Herod back in charge. But instead of putting him back in charge as governor, they say, well, I'll tell you what, we'll do you one better. In 39 B.C., the Roman Senate appoints Herod as king of the Jews. Quite a step up here. And I'm sure, and I know Herod was glad to accept that title. Now, it took a little bit, um, 
Mark Antony is, is tasked with taking a Roman force and making this happen to try to drive out Antigonus and the Parthians. And for two years, he battles against and then finally defeats Antigonus and the Parthians. He drives them out. And then, like I said, two years later in 37, Herod is installed as king of the Jews two years after receiving that title. <clears throat> so now, looking back at what was read earlier, um, uh, Herod being king of the Jews, this is where he received that title and was, was set up. The next period of Herod's life I want to look at is 37 to 30 B.C. This is where Herod starts to consolidate his power. And he does this in a way that is done by many kings, rulers, and, and, and nations at the time. Uh, one of the first things you want to do, you, you want to try to bring the different uh, groups of people, the, the ones with the most power, you want to bring them together. This was done in the ancient world, you know, all the way up. It's, it's good to join families together and share the power. So in 37 B.C., Harry, Herod marries Miriam. She is a Hasmonean princess. This is kind of also what Herod's father did. Uh, his, his marriage was also kind of a political arrangement, and then they had Herod and other children. And Herod decides that's, that's probably a good idea. He'll do the same thing. And so he, he marries Miriam. Uh, and this is an attempt to win the favor of the Jewish people because they love, uh, they love Miriam. But there was one problem. Herod was already married. But that's pretty easily fixed. Uh, we see that he banishes his first wife, Doris, and the son he had with her, whose name also was Antipater, just like his father. She wasn't doing him any favors, wasn't uh, strengthening his political career in any way, so the best thing he could do is get rid of her and start his new family with Miriam. In 36 B.C., Herod, in, in an attempt to continue making strides and making appointments, he appoints Aristobulus III as the high priest. Aristobulus was Miriam's brother, making him Herod's brother-in-law. Um, this was more, the high priest rather, was more a political position than a religious position at this time. The high priests at this time were no longer of the tribe of Levi. It was just whoever they decided to put into those, uh, those, those uh, positions. Aristobulus, it seems like, uh, was very popular with the people. seems like things were working out very well. Uh, Herod had made a good decision. The people liked Aristobulus real well. Problem was, he was just a little too popular. Uh, he was, well, more popular than Herod. Uh, as far as in the political arena, people wanted to interview Aristobulus more and, and all that. And, of course, uh, his popularity grew, and Herod started becoming envious of the popularity of Aristobulus. Herod gets an idea of how to fix this, and he throws a party at his house, and he invites everyone to come over, Aristobulus, all, everyone else in, in uh, any kind of power and, and people that prestige that he wanted to have around. Um, they would have drinks, and they would eat and have dancing. Um, they would uh, swim in the pool and just have a good old time. And uh, sometime during the night as the party was going on, someone made a very interesting discovery, and they found Aristobulus floating in the pool dead. Uh, and by uh, most accounts, everyone seems to believe Herod was the one uh, who caused this accident in 35 B.C. 
as you can imagine, uh, as this got around and everything, uh, Herod's relationship with his wife wasn't wasn't the same anymore. Uh, it was. Uh, I'm, I'm sure she probably believed the rumors just as much as anybody else did as they were going around. As time goes on, uh, we see in 32 BC another rev- a revolt uh, raises up. Uh, Herod fights a revolt in Nabataea. This is, again, the uh, land that his mother is from. The Nabataeans believed Herod was weak. And once again, they didn't like being under Roman rule. They thought Herod was weak, and they thought this is a good chance for us to slide out from under the rule of Herod and maybe even the rule of Rome. And so that is what they tried to do. Herod tried to squash the revolt, and he was unsuccessful. Um, and so he wanted to do what he did the last time. He tried to enlist the help of Rome. The problem was this time it was around the time of another civil war in Rome. You remember in the previous civil war it was, it was Octavian and Mark Antony against the Senate. Well this time it's Octavian against Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And this is the Cleopatra you're thinking of, the, the uh, queen of the Nile, um, uh, they had, she had had a relationship now with Mark Antony, and now this is the civil war that is going on. So Herod's having a hard time putting down this revolt, and Rome is too busy to help. So basically the revolt just keeps going on. In 31 B.C., we start moving toward the Battle of Actium. Uh, this is a sea battle off the coast of Greece, a very famous battle. Uh, the, the battle uh, Octavian against Mark Anthony, and uh, Mark Antony is defeated, and then we see that he and Cleopatra commit suicide. So again, this is a uh, again secular history just kind of coming coming together with biblical history and all working together. Things you've probably heard about uh, now and again. Um, we see these things coming together, and there was one big problem this time. Herod threw his support before the battle was finished. Last time, you remember, after the battle was finished, he declared who he supported. This time, he supported Mark Antony. And it's understandable why he did that. If you remember, when he wanted to regain his power earlier, Mark Antony was the one who came with his army and helped drive out the people so that Herod could be reinstalled. This time, however, Herod found himself on the wrong side. So that happens in 31. Uh, So now Octavian is squarely in the driver's seat over Rome, and uh, he's ready to get rid of Herod. And he wants to get rid of him, number one, because he couldn't put down the revolt in Nabataea. Number two, he supported Mark Antony. And number three, historians seem to suggest that Octavian just didn't like Herod. And uh, as we go along, and you can probably see, uh, he probably had very good reasons not to like him. Uh, But we see in 30 B.C., Herod knows this. Uh, He knows that his job is in jeopardy. So, of course, as a good politician would do, he switches his support to Octavian. And then he goes to Rome, and he begs Octavian to let him keep his job. Basically, he goes there, hands and knees, and grovels, and begs and begs. And amazingly, he convinces Octavian to let him stay in power. So, uh, once again, Herod lives to rule uh, a little longer. 
from this point, we'll move on to the next section of Herod's life, 30 through 10 B.C., and this is, this is one uh, I'll call Herod the Nervous Builder. Um, we'll see here, we'll see 20 years of growing paranoia that someone might try to take his position. He's already had this, we can, you can see, with Aristobulus becoming popular, and of course he uh, got rid of him. But as time keeps going on, Herod gets more and more paranoid. Uh, also, there's 20 years of him, of him trying to prove himself to Octavian uh, and trying to, to uh, keep his position and make Octavian believe that he is someone worth keeping around. And to do this, and, and some, of, some of the things that he does, he goes through 20 years here of some large-scale buildings, very impressive things that Herod does during this time, uh, trying to cement his, his reputation, make his stand as a king, uh, this is something kings have always done to try to leave themselves a name and something that you could look at uh, to see what they did. Most projects that he did, he dedicated to Octavian or Augustus, uh, trying to score those political points and also to try to win the favor with the Jewish people. Uh, now, as that paranoia grew in 29 BC, uh, he has his wife, Miriam, executed on charges of infidelity and she, at the age of 25. Uh, most historians agree it is very unlikely that she was unfaithful. Uh, Herod's paranoia growing, of course, said their, their relationship uh, had chilled and Herod had worries that she was out to get him. Uh, she probably would like to uh, get rid of him just like others, was what was in his mind. Uh, and so as he thought about it more and more, he kept having these imaginations and things that may be going on to the point where he couldn't stand it anymore and finally had her executed. The funny thing is, uh, as, they, as you study about Herod, it seems like he truly loved her. And many people who study Herod believe that her death had a devastating effect on his psychology and where he started going from there. It may have been one of the points where he really started falling down a really bad road. Josephus, on another note, records that when, when she was put to death, she was, had a very cool composure uh, as a woman who had no doubt and, and, and felt um, no shame as she knew that she was completely innocent. And as she was put to death, it was a very dignified way that she composed herself the way Josephus recounts uh, that action. Next year, in 28 B.C., Herod executes another brother-in-law, Costabar, this time uh, for conspiracy. Uh, this was another br brother of Miriam. This was the second brother of Miriam <clears throat> that Herod has killed or, or <laughs> kills himself, however it happened with the first one. In this case, Herod was correct. Um, Costabar thought Herod had lost his mind uh, and uh, was ready to get rid of him. And so Costabar was part of a conspiracy to get rid of him. Herod found out about it and then had him put to death. After this, there were many more attempted assassinations of Herod. Uh, Herod escaped them, uh, and those attempts were followed by executions of those would-be assassins. In 27 B.C., Herod rebuilds Samaria as Sebaste. Uh, this was around the same year, was the same year, the Senate gives Octavian that name, Augustus Caesar, the August one. Sebaste was a city that uh, Herod uh, built here again, or rebuilt to 
celebrate Augustus. Augustus had roots in that land, and so uh, he had dedicated it to him. And like I said before, this is one of many ways he attempted to gain favor of Augustus. In 25 BC, we see Herod waives taxes and distributes grain to Jewish people after a great famine. Uh, this one scored Herod some points for sure. This is one you cannot lose with. If you're ever in a position of authority and have the power to do so, if you want to gain everybody's favor, you get rid of taxes, it'll work. And uh, this is what Herod did. And then, of course, this grain distribution gained him some favor uh, in the eyes of the people. This did not last very long, however. Um, in 23 B.C., we see that Herod builds a palace and the Herodian fortress, Herodium. Uh, here's a picture of that. Um, kind of, I hope you, I hope you can see the perspective of it and, and what it is here. You can see on top of that hill, uh, there is a fortified area. It was kind of a playground, but it, but mainly meant for a fortified area. That hill that it sits on top of was also built by Herod. Uh, everybody by the people he put in charge of that. Uh, that hill didn't exist. It was part of the construction when this fortress was made. Uh, this, is, this is not Masada. Masada was a different one uh, that existed before Herod that Herod also built a couple palaces and a fortress on um, and, and brought it back. But this is one that he built himself uh, during this time. In 22, Herod begins building Caesarea Maritima. Uh, in the New Testament, this is just called Caesarea. This is the same place Paul was in prison for a couple years, the first time under Felix and then under Festus. And this is not the Caesarea Philippi where Peter uh, confessed Jesus as the Christ. Uh, many places at this time were called Caesarea, and you see how Caesarea is spelled there, uh, because many people were, were calling land Caesarea in order to try to score points with Caesar. It wasn't just... Uh, Herod, who was trying to do this, many people who wanted to gain the favor of the Romans uh, were doing all that they could to try to gain as much favor as possible. In 20 B.C., Herod begins what is probably his most famous project. He begins construction of the temple. Uh, this would be not a, I guess, a from scratch, but more of a refurbishing of the, <clears throat> excuse me, of the second temple that was built under the Persians after, uh, after the release, after captivity from Babylon. We know that they came back uh, to their land. And they started the temple and then eventually uh, got around to finishing the temple. And then uh, Herod here was, was kind of refurbishing that and building it back. This, of course, was, was done all to gain favor uh, with the Jewish people. And this did, this did score some points as well. Uh, here is a, this is actually a scale model of Herod's temple uh, that is, is in the museum. Uh, you can see the, the walls there, the great stones. Uh, hard to see in this picture here, but, but this would be a representation of, those, of the great stones that this was built at. This would be the one in Matthew chapter 24 uh, when uh, Jesus and the apostles came out, or his disciples uh, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And like, we, like I talked about in my last lesson, 
when that destruction happened, that is exactly what happened. Uh, it was wiped out. None of these stones were left up on top of one another. But this was a definitely a magnificent structure uh, that Herod was able uh, to put together. So after after that, uh, that was uh, that was twenty years then uh, of of all these building projects that he started and uh, different things that he did, uh, all in the midst of different things happen that causes him to become more and more nervous. And so then we move on to a section of Herod's life that you can look at as Herod the Paranoid from 10 to 4 B.C. to the end of his life here. In 10 B.C., we see the New, Jerus the New Jerusalem Temple is dedicated. Uh, there was much celebration. You would think that this would have been the high point of Herod's career. The problem is he had way too much anxiety and fear to really enjoy it. He was still constantly uh, uh, thought his job was, was pro uh, someone was after him. Uh, in 9 B.C., Caesarea Maritima is inaugurated. That was the building project, another building project we looked at a minute ago. And then in 8 B.C., we see that Herod accuses his sons of high treason. Those sons were Alexander and Aristobulus, the sons of his second wife, uh, Miriam. And then in 7 BC, he has his sons executed for treason. And most agree those were probably false charges, just all of it was in Herod's mind. So if you're keeping count at this point, this, this will be three sons uh, that Herod has now uh, put to death. Um, I'm sorry, that's two. <laughs> we'll get to the third one here in just a bit. Uh, in 6 BC, Herod keeps on battling. Uh, he's battling with the Pharisees at this time. Uh, then in 4 BC, uh, we see that Herod has Antipater. This was the son that he banished and drove out uh, from his first wife, Doris. He has him executed for treason as well. This would be the third son that would be executed uh, by Herod. And at this point, you can see why Augustus Caesar uh, had once said, you're better off being Herod's pig than being his son. And so uh, at, after this happened, Herod's favor with the people, it, it, it just keeps getting worse and worse. At this point, he's executed three sons, and I'm sure he's making the people very nervous. And then in 4 B.C., uh, Herod dies miserably. Um, the, uh, the exact dates, of course, uh, hard to tell, anywhere from 6, 6 B.C. to 3 B.C., somewhere in there, uh, because of it would be great if it wound up being, you know, uh, if we knew exactly uh, when it was and, and if the, uh, the, when the calendar was made, it would have landed like they thought it was, but they were a little off, and so probably around 4 B.C., so a little bit before this time uh, would have been the time that what our reading took place of. Before this, before he died, Jesus was born, uh, and uh, Herod had had uh, uh, put out the edict that all the male children, uh, two years and younger, were to be put to death. So hopefully by this time uh, you understand this man Herod or a little bit of what made him be the kind of person that could put some kind of order like that down. Uh, if you're keeping track, uh, he's, he's, uh, he banished his wife and a son. Uh, he executed, or he, he had his brother-in-law killed. 
Uh, he ex had his wife executed. He killed another or had another brother-in-law executed and three more sons. And that's just the ones we've talked about tonight. Uh, there were others that he also had executed as well. Uh, when, when Herod died, he was very ill at his death and he was universally disliked by the people. In his mind, he knew that at his death, there was likely to be nothing but celebration. No one would be sad that Herod was dead. They would most likely all be happy. And you can kind of understand why. And if all the things we hadn't discussed already uh, gives you an insight into the mind of Herod, uh, this, uh, this idea of nothing but celebration at his death, it was more than he could stand. And he had a, but he had a plan to keep that from happening. He arrested some men, some young men, for vandalism. Uh, these young men had tried to rip a Roman eagle off the temple. This, of course, being a pagan symbol, and they hated seeing that symbol on their temple, and so they tried to rip it down. These young men, of course, were very popular among the people for this heroic act. And in order, uh, and what Herod did, he, he arrested them for vandalism, and then he ordered that on his death, these men would be executed at the same time. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that at his death, the people of Jerusalem would be crying. Now think about that for just a moment. That is crazy. <laughs> that is the definition of crazy. Uh, to, to, to pull or to pull a stunt like this uh, and, and, and trying to make, make sure that people were sad at the time that you died. At Herod's death, however, these men were released and they were given a hero's welcome. It, that was the first order of business after uh, Herod died. That their, their execution was canceled and it and, uh, did not happen. <clears throat> Real quickly, before, before I end, I thought it would be good to go through Herod's family. I talked about that there are a lot of Herods that you read about in the Bible, and sometimes it gets very confusing when you have the same names over and over. Uh, several pharaohs are mentioned, but they're only called Pharaoh. Uh, and, and sometimes Herod is said, and, and sometimes another name is given with it, and I want to look at a few of those. He had ten wives, but only had children with five. Uh, the first wife we mentioned was Doris, and he had a son with her named Antipater. This is the ones that he banished. His second wife, like I said, was Miriam. Uh, two, children, two sons with her, Alexander and Aristobulus. Uh, and if, you're, if you remember, those first three sons uh, were executed uh, by Herod because he was afraid they were going to try to uh, kill him and, and take his job. Uh, his third wife would have been Miriam II. Uh, and, and with her, he had his first son that was named Philip, Herod Philip I. Uh, and he uh, just left. He disappeared. He decided that it was too dangerous to stay. It was way too hot in the kitchen. And then before he had something bad happen to him like the others, he was ready to get out of town. This Philip, and also this Philip was not the one that was... Uh, uh, that was the, uh, the one that, that uh, had the wife that, uh, apologies, let me back up. His fourth wife was named Maltese. Um, 
with her he had Herod Archelaus. Uh, this is the Herod that we read about in Matthew chapter 2, uh, who takes over after his father uh, Herod died. This was the one when, when uh, uh, they found out, when Joseph and Mary found out that Herod had died, they were ready to return to their homeland and then found out that his, his son had taken over. He was worse than Herod, and they were warned, don't come back yet, wait a little longer. Uh, he was worse than his father, and he did not last very long before Rome got rid of him. And then the other son was Herod Antipas. This was the Herod that stole the wife of his brother Philip II, and then eventually had John the Baptist executed. And this is also the same Herod when Jesus is at his trial and Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, he decides to send him on to Herod. Uh, he goes to Herod. Of course, Herod was excited to see him. Uh, Herod wanted to perform some magic tricks and do something for him. Of course, Jesus wouldn't do that. And so uh, Herod sent him back. And then there was the last wife, Cleopatra. This is not the uh, queen of the Nile, not the one we talked about before. Uh, but then she had Herod Philip II, and this was the one uh, that had the wife that his brother uh, took from him. And then, so that's five Herods. There were two more Herods. Like I said, there were seven, two more that we read about. The first one was Herod Agrippa I. This was the Herod in Acts chapter 12 that accepted worship, and then he was eaten by worms. And then there was Herod Agrippa II, and this was the one that said Paul could have been released had he not appealed to Caesar. So those were the seven Herods, uh, and the different ones you read about. I'm sure you will not remember this, uh, but I hope as you do come across some of these things, you do remember there were different ones and kind of what led uh, to all of them. I started off with, with this title here, King of the Jews. Herod was one of the king of the Jews. Normally when we hear the, the phrase now, king of the Jews, the first person we think about is Jesus. Uh, a lot of people who study politics will say that the best form of government is a monarchy, one that has a king. To our American ears, that sounds crazy um, because we know that our founders did not want a king because they knew the problems that would come with a king. Socrates once said the problem with a monarchy is finding a good monarch. And that's definitely the problem that happens. Um, Israel had a few kings, uh, some good, but most were bad. They started off with a king, and God was their king. Uh, they didn't want God as their king, and they wanted a man as a king, and we all know that story. And so God appointed Saul, and then after Saul, David was anointed the king. Um, both of these men, they had their ups and they had their downs. After that, um, more kings came along, uh, appointed by men. Some, some came to the throne as they were reigned or as, as they're uh, passed down from their family and, and other circumstances. Now we have a new king in, in our kingdom, um, another one who has been, again, anointed uh, by God. That's what the name Christ means, the anointed. He is our new king. And with King Jesus, we know that that would be the perfect monarch. King Jesus and King Herod couldn't be any more different. Uh, they So many things against them. Uh, one of the things that I, I thought about was, you think about the paranoia that Herod had. Couldn't stand the thought of someone taking his position. Uh, he he uh, 
felt higher than everyone and did not want to lose his power. Jesus, he was born, of course, of uh, small means and uh, was not puffed up like Herod was. And uh, in uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, we read something that Titus talked about last week in his lesson. And when he was talking about it, I thought, oh, that's going to be the verse I'll end with on mine. He went over it kind of uh, briefly and, and, and talked about it for a minute. Uh, but it says there, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may, we may also be glorified. The, the second to last line there where it says we are joint heirs with Christ. When Titus talked about it last week, he says it, it just it doesn't seem right to say it, and it doesn't. An earthly king would never consider the people, the common people, to be an heir with him. However, King Jesus uh, says that we are. And that's what we want to strive for tonight. We want to be heirs with him. We want to obtain his kingdom, and we want to live in his kingdom when this life is over. And that's what we have to think about now. We have a perfect king. We just have to be willing to accept him.